Strategy and Insider, exploring future trends and their impacts. Welcome to the already ninth episode of our Strategy and Insider podcast. This season, as you know, revolves around the future of health. And during the last episodes, we did speak to thought leaders uh, such as bioinformaticians, physicians, a serial health entrepreneur, investors, two global pharma executives, a government representative from Abu Dhabi, and also startup founders and leading ethicists. My name personally is Thomas Sobach, and I'm a partner at Strategy and, and the host of this podcast. The world is still amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, and nonetheless, um, we're continuing our podcast and really trying to cope with this crisis as best as we can. And maybe the current situation also gives you as listeners a little more time to listen in and tune in. So we'll make sure that our conversations that we're having are really worth it. You, as one of the more than 2,300 loyal listeners, are really keeping us going. And thank you for your interest in our conversations, the positive reviews that you're giving and the engagement that we're having on social media. And in order to comply with uh, social distancing rules that we are all having and to prevent that coronavirus can spread any further, we're recording today's session in slightly different settings than usual. And uh, me personally here, I'm at home in Germany, sitting at my kitchen table, uh, whereas my guest for today, Dan Vedat, uh, joins me out of London. And Dan is uh, the founder and CEO of Medopat, uh, which is a healthcare technology company based in Great Britain's capital, London. Dan himself studied bioengineering and mechanical engineering at Johns Hopkins and also did two years of PhD research in Oxford. And just uh, tuning in today, we just realized we have some same roots there around Oxford. But never mind, it was during those days, two years, um, in those two years that Dan gained first-hand experience of the daily work of doctors in the British healthcare system, which made him basically think about the way in which technologies could exist both clinicians and patients. And it was in 2011, uh, right before finishing his studies, where he decided to leave his PhD, actually, uh, to start Medopat, which is quite, I would say, bold and unafraid. Uh, and by now, Medopat is one of the most recognized startups, uh, also judging by the amount of funding capital that went into it with a valuation of in the range of $250 million about a year ago, which might even have been rising since. But it is therefore with great honor and appreciation that I can welcome today Dan Vedat. And thank you so much for taking the time, um, especially considering the current situation. Dan. Thank you so much, Thomas. It is my honor as well to be able to be part of your community and, and contribute. And hopefully together we can try to help with the whole pandemic, but also fast forward the adoption of technology and all the good things for healthcare. Super. And, and thanks for, for your commitment there. And in many ways, this crisis is showing us the importance of developing digital care much, much faster and much further than before. And really, Metapad, uh, I'm astonished by, is contributing to exactly this 
being a tech company that develops health data applications, but also with regard to the outbreak of COVID-19, Medipad has adapted its remote patient monitoring solutions to support high-risk patients in receiving ongoing care whilst self-isolating themselves. Your company is actually offering uh, this solution to me, NHS, a non-for-profit, which I personally find a, a truly admirable step, which many patients certainly will be grateful for. When you actually started Metapet, you had virtually no funding, it seems, yeah, other than a £2,000 grant from the Royal Society of Arts. And you had lived through, can only imagine, some rough years until a first real substantial injection of north than £20 million in the Series A funding back in 2018. What gave you then the strength to preserve and remain confident um, in, in that situation that one day you would make this breakthrough and get some major investors on board? Thanks, Thomas, uh, for the question. It's a really hard one, uh, to be honest, because at that point, we didn't know. You know, we just had a hope that things will work. And we couldn't really connect the dots to shape the future at that point. But somehow, I personally felt there's nothing else that I want to do, or as a matter of fact, I can do, except what I was doing. And I kept doing what I wanted to do and I liked to do and the people that they were helping and contributing. And I think because of perhaps the amount of passion we have, and we had, and a little bit of a naivety, I guess, we had, it kept us going. <laughs> and one thing led the other, you know, and, and it took us a long time as well, because in healthcare, especially in the UK, given that the big NHS, you know, the tens of billions of dollar healthcare IT project that didn't work out the way that everyone had hoped uh, during those time, it impacted every company in that space that's impossible to do anything within NHS. So we were dealing with that on the side, on top of you know doing any business in healthcare is really, really hard. So I guess to cut this story short, I didn't know how hard it is. <laughs> Otherwise, maybe I would have given up. <laughs> so passion and naivety, as you put it, uh, made you in the end also successful beyond the great talent that must have been instilled into the company by yourself and obviously co-founders and, and colleagues more broadly. You know? Yeah. But then it, it somehow must be very rewarding then, as in 2018, you were basically awarded the CEO of the year at the uh, WEBIT uh, Global Summit, which must be a relief to some degree. In your opinion, what makes a good leader and a CEO in your eyes? And especially probably also in times like this, where we need to steer through a very severe crisis currently. I don't know if I'm a good CEO, to be honest. And awards are great and we are honored and I'm honored, you know, to receive them. And we get some of them, you know, here and there. I think time would tell, uh, especially as we are entering into a totally new world uh, because of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows what is the right way to do. Nobody has really managed companies during kind of chaos like this. Hmm. Uh, what I do know is I care deeply for 
the team members that they also care deeply about the mission and what we are trying to achieve here. And I love that part. Uh, what I also do know, I try to work the hardest and try to bring people that are smarter than me and hopefully everyone else in the company constantly. Mm-hmm. And my belief and time would tell is if I can perform and do that, hopefully we'll have a, a, a legacy and a company with a legacy that will last for many, many decades, hopefully, and at some point impacting millions and billions of people's lives, direct or indirect. And that would be a joyful moment. But I don't know if I'm a good you know, CEO or not. As a matter of fact, it might be interesting to you. Two weeks ago, we had an all hand in our company mm-hmm. and I told everyone, we are not going to operate as a company anymore. We are not even operate as Medopad anymore. We're going to operate as a group of citizens and I will be one citizen out of the hundred whatever people that we have in the company. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get together to see how we can move forward and most importantly, try to help hospitals. So yeah, that is how we are operating at the moment. So I'm not even CEO anymore. I'm a citizen. Okay. So <laughs> that's a good picture to have in mind. And what I'm hearing, Dan, is basically leading by example uh, um, and, and working the hardest and cutting down travel and re- maintaining social distance um, and, and others is, yeah, super important. Second, I'm, I'm hearing taking really decisive actions and, and taking care of the safety and health of staff. And also what I'm hearing is transparent and, and very open and close communication to, to your people, uh, to your other citizens in the company. The only other thing that I would add personally experiencing is also that, that leaders must at some point uh, also think ahead and try to find the strength and how to emerge stronger from this crisis at some point. Uh, but very clearly, um, yeah, would, would underscore what you have been just outlining. But time will tell whether we're doing this to a good degree or not. Basically, talking back about Metapad and the offices that you have currently in, is in Shanghai, in New York and California, of course, being headquartered in London, you're also planning, hopefully despite the crisis, going to Japan, Brazil and the Middle East. What are the differences you personally and, and your team are experiencing compared to other, let's say, tech metropoles when deciding you go into London and operate your headquarter out of London? For us, you know, I was in Oxford and of course going from Oxford to London made sense given that the amount of, you know, organizations and institutions and hospitals are based here. And a lot of people were telling us why not going back to the US and mm-hmm. we kind of liked and I kind of liked London as a city and it was a place that I felt, you know, I like it, you know. And it took me a couple of years to maybe appreciate why London is a great place for health tech specifically. And the core of that, if you look at every city in the world, it is really hard to find a place that has biggest number of very prestigious top teaching hospitals 
in a like a kind of a 30 minutes drive distance mm-hmm. and, and a group of hospitals that almost they cover any disease conditions that you can imagine and they all are leading in their fields globally with amazing clinicians and academic partners around them and i think that is a foundations to build anything meaningful in healthcare so london in that sense is very unique you don't even find that in the us you know if you go to the us even in big cities in new york i don't think we have the same concentration of major teaching hospitals in one city and i think that's the biggest strength and that is why nhs and uk it is in a way a hub of health tech there are a lot of really good health tech companies based here but this is just the beginning in my view and it can be a lot better and hopefully the kind of pandemic that has happened now it accelerates adoption of technology for healthcare kind of something that maybe should have happened a few years ago and that opens up opportunities for everyone with good idea passion and a little bit of probably naivety to run and create the next meaningful company yeah and of course in that sense the crisis can also be a chance to some degree So Medipad is, as I was alluding to earlier, um, no much better than I do, um, essentially a tech company developing health data applications, making use of uh, digital biomarkers. And with those biomarkers, uh, someday, uh, the belief is uh, that it might be possible to early diagnose things like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease. And of course, there is a series of studies ongoing that you are undertaking yourself in collaboration with companies like Bayer, J&J and others. In your eyes, can biomarkers also in future help detect infectious diseases such as coronaviruses? And uh, how far uh, do we need to go in order to make that happen in your eyes? We, as a company, excited about quantifying your overall health and as a part of that diseases because they are impacting your overall health mm-hmm. and this is basically the summary of medicine in a way or diagnostic space in a way and it used to happen traditionally via you seeing a doctor and then based on their intuitions and their knowledge make certain recommendations then pathology came along made things a little bit more quantifiable with lab tests and different you know numbers in those tables to simplify it very much and then imaging came along and made invisible things visible again gave you a lens to the body that didn't exist before that and then genomics came along which changed oncology and rare disease treatments by in a way quantifying your origin and your dna and how that might impact your health in some area. Now, we think there's an evolving category in the medicine happening. And we are trying together with our partners, some you mentioned, you know, major tech companies like Apple and Tencent to life sciences companies to payers and providers to contribute to this new category. And what it means, digital biomarker in, in our world is any data that your body generates. And that could be something as simple as right now, the way I talk, 
that might help us and Medopad and other partners in one day predict maybe Dan will get Alzheimer in five years from now based on the patterns we saw in his voice to movement of your fingers and hands to detect your Parkinson as an example is something that we are doing with Tencent. We have already clinically validated that in China and we have finished our clinical studies in the UK. Or it could be something based on the data that a variable, a connected device can collect. And now, yes, in the case of coronavirus, COVID-19, there is now already indications if you look at patterns of your oxygen saturation versus your heart rate versus your temperature and your respiratory rate, that is a really interesting signature to show that a patient is deteriorating, which deterioration is basically in the case of COVID-19, your lung function collapses and then that is why you need ventilations. And then if you don't get the right treatments, you would probably die. Technically, with those four data streams that I mentioned, maybe even with half of those, we might be able to pick up patients that are deteriorating probably a few hours, maybe a few days earlier. And that is great because that is the meaning of proactive predictive medicine. And that is why we as Medopad and our partners that they partner with Medopad are very excited about digital biomarkers. Every other category in medicine I mentioned, they are all generates periodic data, imaging, genomics, lab test. With periodic data, it is really hard to come up with insight and interventions on an hourly or daily basis because you just need to do those tests and those tests takes time and efforts to do it and you have to go to the hospital. But digital biomarker is simple. It's real-time, near real-time. All the devices can be simple in your pocket, which is your mobile phone that you might need. Or in some cases, you might have one or two other devices integrated into the phone, and then you have everything you need. So in a way, suddenly open up opportunities that has never existed before. The same way that, you know, what radiology did. Hundred years ago, radiology did magic in medicine. All the care pathway, treatment plans, the way we diagnose certain things, the way we treat certain things, it's now because of that view to the body. And we are hoping, together with our partners, digital biomarker category will bring similar impact, maybe even more than all the previous categories in medicines combined. Yeah. And then uh, I think this is superbly promising. And also talking a bit about the European countries like the UK and Germany, we're all asked uh, basically to stay at home, to flatten the curve of the virus. And uh, therefore it is expected that patient demand for more remote consultations and online health services will increase and also the federal Communications Commission um, in the US uh, plans to inject 200 million into uh, telecommunication services, information services, and also devices necessary to, to provide telehealth services in, in such an emergency period. We are in a crisis and we are in a, in a situation where we need to act quickly and decisively. What do you think might be the after effects for things like biomarkers and digital health when the worst part of the current outbreak is over? 
Will we go back to normal or will something remain here in your eyes? It is very hard to predict the future given that so many things are happening. Having said that, things has happened to us in the past two weeks that we could not even imagine it in our wildest dreams. Things including that rollout of Medipad for the whole country to support COVID-19 patients. And now we have confirmations from two major governments in Europe to do that across the countries to support remote care for patients that are COVID-19, monitoring the certain vital signs I mentioned, you know, temperature, oxygen saturations, your long function test, which is something that we have built into our remote patients monitoring solutions and a number of other metrics, including your symptoms. Now, those data goes to your clinician and that are in charge of you from a specific hospitals that are dedicated to COVID-19 and the data gets flagged if you're out of certain range and then automatic prioritization happened on the clinician dashboard. And then they look at it and if they need to intervene, they can initiate a video call via the system, check on you, change your uh, treatments, prescribe certain drugs if needed to be all remotely. And if the situation is really bad, uh, get you come to the hospital ASAP before you collapse. And then you need to go to ICU with all the complications that can happen. And then it feels ICU. And then you will need everyone's on the ventilators. And, and suddenly it becomes a lose-lose game for everyone. So that is the what we are seeing as a part of the pandemic. Now, whether people continue using these technologies, who knows? I think it would be likely that it will open up people and at least people would know they need to have the infrastructure in place because this is not the first pandemic and it's not going to be the last. So that, I guess, wake up call, it is there and it's going to stay with us. And hopefully peoples and governments and managements of different healthcare systems, they will prepare for the next pandemic, which could be the second wave of the current pandemic, as a matter of fact. The world will change. How? I don't know. And how much? We will see. Hey, and uh, I think that that's a good ending for this kind of jump into the uh, COVID-19 situation and probably taking this now as a possibility to further divert the focus of, of our discussion today a little away of, from this overwhelming topic currently and try to shed some light more broadly on the future of health as a whole. Medipad's aim is, and I'm citing here, to deliver better and more personalized care by transforming the way patients and data interact with clinicians, which I personally find obviously quite interesting. And one of our last guests, who is a serial entrepreneur, mentioned that AI and digital technology can actually be an enabler of a, let's call it a renaissance of the patient-physician relationship and make medicine even more human again. Would you agree with this statement? And where do you see potentially other advantages besides giving back that humanity in in care by using things like AI? Sure. Definitely the new type of computing power and mathematical models 
that you can run and we can call them AI, machine learning, deep learning, and yeah. how we're going to categorize them will significantly change our understanding of people's health and the possibility and the options on the treatments. And that is simple because we used to do that before we had you know, fewer data points, doctor visit, and then pathology came along and then radiology came along. And then even in genomics, which is you know, a 20, 30 years old kind of technology, mm-hmm. clinicians cannot really get insight out of that. It's just too much data. Uh, you need to have some softwares to kind of simplify it for, for human. And now if you look at all those data combined, and of course, as you know, we are creating a lot more data than before, And if you combine that with digital biomarker on top of that, you need something to be able to find patterns in these data. And I think individual humans, no matter how smart they are, it's just not easy to do that. And I guess a simple... I would even say impossible, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You never know. Sometimes, you know, we might have some really intelligent people coming. So uh, I don't want to say, you know, zero, you never know percent chance, but the same way that today there is no single person can predict weather forecast anymore. True. There are like so many computations and then they forecast in you know, six days from now, this can happen four days from now. Maybe thousand years ago, somebody would have looked at the sky and the wind and the humidity that they could feel with their skin and make certain predictions, but yeah, limited predictions. Yet to come. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. No, true. And hey, uh, I know, um, and that is one of the characteristics uh, that, uh, of course, big data and wealth of data means that different sources of capturing those data points around all of us, they need to have some convergence of interest. Otherwise, data might not be shared and interlinked between those sources. So it will only happen if there is kind of an ecosystem of players and institutions working together cohesively and overcoming personal interests. And I find it very interesting that you as Metapep are taking that very collaborative approach on the one hand, partnering with kind of the old healthcare economy like Bayer, J&J and other big pharma and, and medtech players on the one hand, and then kind of the new world of healthcare players like Tencent and Apple and, and also they are working both with the Chinese side of things as well as the U.S. side of things. To me, it's a, a truly cosmopolitan and cross-industry approach. Can you please shed some light on what kind of the biggest learning surprises are when working with companies like these um, as Metapad, which truly is still a, a startup in itself and, and only yeah, 100 plus people currently working in, in, in the company? I think... These companies, they want to do good things for the end user, let's say patients in most scenarios. And each of them, they have a very uh, set kind of businesses and ways that they used to operate for many years, some of them hundred plus years. And there is stuff that they're really good at, but then there is stuff that a company like us can add value and be mm-hmm. complementary. And then even there is stuff that other companies, you know, other startups that we work with, they can complement even on top of what we can complement. And if you say it is not about 
who does what and who gains which part. It's about hopefully creating a solutions that adds value to the patient. Then it makes sense to partner because every partner can contribute in a productive way. It is very easy to talk about it because partnership, you know, kind of like simple, you two, two people come together, Yeah. but it's really hard to actually make meaningful partnerships. And that requires a level of a commitment beyond just, you know, oh, two corporates are partnering and that's it. It really requires two corporates, individuals. They really bond with each other and buy into each other mission and angle that they're trying to address. So I think we've been lucky to be able to partner with some of our partners, some of them more successful than the others. Some of them, we are doing a lot more stuff. Some of them, we are doing a lot less. It's been amazing for us because it gave us a jump start in some scenario and a lot of learnings that otherwise we had to go through it. And we will see it's an evolving world, but we are very committed to partnership as a company and we love it because we learn from it. Yeah. And um, it's yeah interesting to see that you're referencing a partnership is more than just being something written on a, on a piece of paper, but but actual people yeah, that need to drive this relationship and partnership, finding personal bonds into that and, and personal commitment. Successful partnerships, obviously, you rightly reference, so live from everyone contributing what they are good at. Yeah? And what are the two, three things that big corporate companies are bringing to the partnership and where Medopad has its two to three most important contributions into these types of partnerships? Yeah, um, big corporates, they have resources, and this is very important, right? They can allocate capitals, number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, they do have a reach to certain stakeholders in healthcare, whether it is government, whether it is healthcare providers, and that can also accelerate adoption of any technology, any propositions that has created as a part of the mm -hmm. partnership. And of course, they have a lot of knowledge about, let's say if you're doing a partnership within cardiovascular space, it does make sense to work with one of the best cardiovascular companies in the world. If you're doing something in neurology slash dementia, Alzheimer's space, maybe it makes sense to work with Janssen, a company that has deep understanding of the disease. So it also compound our knowledge because we cannot be you know, knowledgeable in every field of medicine and medicines so expansive in terms of like areas that someone has to know. So there are a lot of stuff that big corporates can bring. And then from our side, we are good at a few things. And that's kind of like what we like to focus. The whole kind of understanding of digital biomarkers and data that can be collected through mobile phones and connected devices. We have created a, literally a platform for that, supported with seven kind of a foundational pillar to be able to deliver those. And delivering is not just making it. Delivering, it mm -hmm. starts with discovering it, clinically validating it, and then making it ready for a commercial launch to become mm -hmm. a sustainable business. That is what we're good at. And, and that's why pharma companies, you know, they like to have non-molecule revenue and products 
we are that, you know, helping them to build digital health solutions, digital medicine, digital therapeutics. Insurance companies as well, they want to find better ways to engage with their policyholders, to screen them, support their health in a scalable way rather than get everyone go to the hospitals. Again, digital biomarkers is the first and the easiest way to do that. And hospitals, of course, hospitals are not in the business of making you know, tech products. They are really good at treating patients, understanding and knowing about the best care plans and treatments, et cetera, et cetera. And this is where we partner with them and they, you know, we, we learn from them and we provide our technology to them. And together we try to help, you know, patients. So we have our angle to each of those three stakeholders, which kind of compromise mm-hmm. the whole totality of healthcare as a whole. And that's what we do. And we are learning, to be honest, still. Cool. So, uh, understood. And as such, you are uh, kind of a pioneer also in shifting paradigms from curing today to preventing diseases tomorrow. And with me personally, you have an evangelist of this, as I also believe in gaining truly and, and leapfrog quality of care and also keeping healthcare sustainable going forward. As you are running studies in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and, and other disease areas, to what extent, from what you're seeing there, from the readouts of your studies and being obviously part of a very vital community, to what extent will medicine in the future be able to not only better detect such life-threatening conditions, but also to prevent and treat them more effectively going forward? I think we will enter to a world that the split between diagnostics and therapeutics would be very blurry and they're going to become one. At the moment, they're like separate because we are dealing with periodic data and by virtue of that, suddenly you have to diagnose someone and then, you know, a month later, two months later, four months later, you start, you know, doing some treatments and then you keep checking and, and kind of goes on. As data and insights about your overall health becomes more real time through this digital biomarker, you're going to get insight that, okay, this patient has a risk of getting diabetes in 10 years from now, 90%, then you will start doing something about that individual as a government, as an insurance, or as an individual, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I think a lot of things will change. And this is why, you know, one of our tagline is together with our partners, we want to kind of create this category of proactive predictive medicine, something that mm-hmm. many people talked about it, but no one has really delivered on that promise because the means to deliver it didn't exist. It doesn't matter, you know, idea might be great, but if there is no technology to deliver it, and in this sense, would be this proactive predictive healthcare via digital biomarker, because if you cannot quantify something, how can you do anything about it? So it will change. And I think it will change very fast. I think we're going to have new way of engagements with people on their health in even five years from now, things that might be hard to even imagine today. Very interesting, Dan, and also that you see that more near term and not to talk about the 2050 scenario, but rather the 2025 scenario here, uh, so five years from now. And 
I don't want to obviously end our discussion today that, that I find very inspiring without at least touching on data protection and issues potentially arising from that. And obviously, you have your experiences working with the likes as Tencent and Apple and others. To what extent uh, do you see data protection issues even further rising as we are more and more touching people's individual lifestyle data and, and tracking more their day-to-day doings uh, going forward in order to be in a position to have enough meaningful data at scale that, that can be integrated and analyzed at the end of the day. So A, how do you see that data protection issue further evolving? Uh, and secondly, um, what are you and the community doing to counteract that? It is a very important topic because we are living in a world that if someone has your data, mm-hmm. they can potentially use it against you in different ways or monetize your data for their own commercial benefits. And at the moment, I don't think we have come up with a way as a society to make it in a way that is win-win for everyone and the concerns of the people, it is met. <laughs> and that's why everyone, for a right reason, is worried about it. Having said that, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic is a really interesting example. So many people are contributing so much of their data to advance a treatment and advance finding ways of, you know, managing the pandemic. So people are open to do that. They just want to make sure it's not going to get them in trouble. And I think mm-hmm. the trouble is they get worried that, you know, if their data goes public, then they might not get a job uh, for whatever reason or other examples that they might be concerned impacting their future. I think that's one part. And the second part is I don't think still people have received enough value from the risk that they're exposing when they are giving their data. An example is if, let's say, hypothetically, you could, you know, work with a company and then, you know, you feed your, I don't know, your heart rate and temperature and a bunch of other data. And then 99% accuracy, this technology of that company would tell you before you have heart attack, 10 days before that or two days before that, even five hours before that. Everybody would, you know, go for it and now make it tens of diseases, you know, you can predict and be proactive. Everybody goes for it because it will be no brainer. I think at least um, I have one voice, but a lot of people that I know as well, they think that. Yeah. So basically it's, if, if I understand it correctly, it's kind of a, a positive balance or ratio between risk at the one side, but also the benefit that that might arise from using this at the other end of the spectrum. Yes. And also making sure that, you know, we understand the concern of individuals and be Mm -hmm. very respectful of those, you know, and any circumstances you cannot share people's data, you know, with their demographic and their names, because that can be used at some point against them. So it is non-starter. In no way you can use their data unless they have consented for their data to be used for research, developing, you know, new technologies, et cetera. And if someone doesn't want it, let's respect that. Uh, And let's give the power to the end users to decide. 
And then they are smart people and they look at, you know, pros and cons. They look at what they want to do with their data and, and how their data contributes to the world. And then they decide, you know, some people are open to donate money to people. Some people, they don't. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just a personal choice. So let's give the power back to the end user and let them decide. Medopad as a company doesn't need to decide. Government shouldn't decide. Other companies shouldn't decide, I think. I think we should leave it to the patients and we should make sure that people and patients, they understand all the consequences so they have their eyes wide open. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that, giving the power back to the end users and and listening to them and respecting their preferences uh, as to which extent they want to take part or not based on their personal risk-benefit ratio that they, that they read into it. So if we would meet again uh, about 10 years from now, in your eyes, what do you think would have been then by that time in 2030 the biggest surprises and the advancements in healthcare that we as a society are experiencing? It is really hard to predict future because there are so many things involved and we are living in such a connected world that it's all chain effect. But some of the concept I talked about to be able mm-hmm. to have something in your pocket and tells you before anybody knows you have Parkinson's or Alzheimer or heart conditions or diabetes, you just name it. It is totally possible, even earlier than 10 years. Mm-hmm. And now if we have advancement in the field of connected devices that can analyze your chemicals in your body, you know, uh, your blood or your other biomarkers that can be measured without, you know, creating problems and making them very non kind of invasive, then (laughs) magic can happen, I would say. And we are not too far from it. As an example, we have recently done an acquisitions in the hard risk space, it measures something, a data points that otherwise you had to use invasive technology before. We haven't made an announcement what company it is and what, com- that, what that company does. But mm-hmm. suddenly that company gives you a view to your health that never existed. You had to be in like ICU kind of situation under some sort of surgery to have that kind of insight. So we are very excited more than any time I think this pandemic will open up eyes of a lot of healthcare providers and governments to do things in a different way. It will make people more concerned and aware of their health. And we are here together with other partners jointly trying to contribute and hopefully leave a little bit of a dent in the universe of healthcare and add some little value here and there. And that would be my dream. And it's going to be hard. And I have no ambitions to claim that we have done anything meaningful yet. Mm-hmm. Because I think the possibilities are huge. And this is only a tip of the iceberg. And that tip of the iceberg, uh, I find intriguing because I, I like to compare the age of data and data analytics in healthcare that we are in the midst of, I would say, or at the beginning still, uh, seems like uh, back in the days, the invention of the microscope, where at that time we didn't know that cells existed or even cell elements existed up until the, the point where we had that microscope. And 
Similarly today, uh, we know there is data, but we don't know which data is predictive for what and what the patterns are that, that we could read into that. And we can expect great things to happen, most likely. Uh, things like diabetes, Alzheimer's, cancer, and, and you name it. One example, you know, and this was a mind-blowing example for myself and I experienced it personally. Today, if you go to the airport and ask the airport, you know, assistants, you know, people, informations in the airport, whether my flight is delayed and how many hours, they mm -hmm. cannot tell you as precisely as some applications can tell because they're collecting the network data They're collecting the patterns of the flight and the flight before that and everything and air conditions and everything. Uh, and then gives you an insight. I know better than a lot of airport staff sometimes what is the status of my flight. You can imagine at some point something like this might happen to healthcare. That as a patient, you might have a lot more insight because of all the data that has been collected through your you know, devices and insights and analysis that has been running in the background than even you know, a healthcare system. Yeah, and, and on that note, I think it's a great example to end with. And on that note, I, I truly found it inspiring then um, to see with which passion you have driven the company to, to where it is currently. And beside that passion, you've referenced a bit of naivety uh, throughout that journey uh, to, to really further believe into this one idea. I secondly found it great to see um, the power of partnerships and, and ecosystems from a geographic point of view, for instance, in London, but also from a partnership perspective with uh, big corporates and, and, and payers. And thirdly, I found it great to see that you talk about the diagnostics and therapeutics lines are blurring and, and within the next five years, significant changes that we cannot imagine yet uh, will eventually happen. So thanks very much, Dan, for giving those very great and inspirational um, uh, thoughts right from the street uh, um, of, of digital healthcare. Um, so truly enjoyed that conversation. Thank you as well for you, Thomas, and your team. And again, these are view of one citizen with a little bit of a experience and a lot of naivety that we have. So hopefully uh, some of it will come through and hopefully some of it will happen and, and help people. Great. Thank you very much, everyone, also uh, tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. If there is any further information that you want to have, please go to our website and download our latest Thinking Around the Future of Health. With that said, I do wish you a very nice day. Stay safe and tune in next time. Bye-bye. Strategy and Strategy Made Real.